You're fighting each other and think you're doing well. And the sinners on the outside going to heaven, that's all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus now. I tell you that's all. Welcome back, listeners. This is God Save America, where we talk about the 33 most popular denominations in the United States, go through them, talk about their history, what they're all about, and kind of put them in a little bit more context. Today, we're talking about Quakers. I guess this would be our second Christian denomination. In the general secular world, I think a lot of people think of Quakers as very open-minded. I think there's a bit of a stereotype that They can almost believe anything that they want. Uh, We're going to get into what Quakers actually believe and what they actually practice and see if there's any credibility to that conception that at least I have. We're also going to get into how they originated, what brought about their existence, and how they came to the U.S. Samuel, should we get into what Quakers believe? Sure. So Quakers technically are the religious society of friends, Quaker is this informal kind of nickname that attached to them very early on in the 1600s and is stuck ever since. But technically, it's the Religious Society of Friends, and they often just refer to each other as friends. And if you see anywhere a friend's meeting or meeting house or friend's school, that probably means Quaker. They are all over the country. They're in the Northeast, in the Midwest, and the West. But traditionally, the biggest concentration is in Pennsylvania. That's where they first got a sort of significant foothold in America. And that's still the biggest number of Quakers that you'll find is in Pennsylvania. But they are all over. They'll pop up anywhere. The Religious Society of Friends has a very particular style, a different sort of style of worship and beliefs that really set them apart as radical when they originated in the 1600s. Kind of what's interesting about the Quakers is how they started as this sort of radical oppositional movement, and over time, they've just kind of become, like, invisible. (laughs) You just sort of don't notice them unless you're looking for them. They can kind of fly under the radar. So that wasn't always the case. No, they used to stick out like a sore thumb and were seen as a great threat, but... You know, you could argue that society has kind of evolved to catch up with them, in a sense, to the point that now they don't stand out as so strange, unless you study closely how they work and what they teach that distinguishes them. They are pacifist. They believe war is wrong. And as in general, as a matter of conscience, they refuse to participate in war. They are strictly egalitarian in their social teachings. They believe that all people have a divine light or inner light, and hence, in a sense, all people, therefore, are called to be ministers. So there is no ordained clergy set apart from the laity, like you find in almost all other churches. They're strictly anti-materialistic. They disapprove of displays of wealth or ostentation. And they consider the inner light, the sort of dwelling of divine wisdom or dwelling of Christ. You can kind of explain it theologically in many different ways, but 
quote, they believe this inner light or conscience is the highest authority, higher than any institutional body or creed. So they do not have any sort of creed that you have to sign on to or recite to be a Quaker. Many Quakers, although this gets complicated because there have been different branches and movements, especially in recent years, but so-called Orthodox Quakers who adhere more closely to the the kind of early teachings of Quakerism, they believe that the inner light is a higher authority than scripture. So they may read the Bible, they may reflect on the Bible, but they do not consider it an inerrant authority on doctrine. The highest authority is always conscience. Naturally, if this is your position, it can raise certain questions, which have been kind of uh, points of controversy or ambiguity for Quakers through the years. Like, what if you take part in Quaker prayer and embrace the Quaker teachings, but your conscience tells you, for instance, you don't believe in the divinity of Christ? Can you be a Quaker and not be a Christian? Well, Many Quakers today say, yes, this belief that you don't have to subscribe to any creed goes all the way. And so you don't even have to believe in God, according to some. Would these be the Orthodox Quakers? Yes. And that term obviously has been used in different ways at different times. So you can't necessarily go back infinitely into the past and say, well, any Orthodox Quaker had this position. But that is the way the term is used today. Today, Orthodox Quakers are Quakers who adhere completely to nonviolence and to the total ultimate authority of individual conscience. So this Christian organization, as a result of having one of their creeds, you could say, being inner light is greater than scripture, opened the door for the possibility of not believing in the Trinity and not believing Uh even in Jesus as a savior. Right. And there are many gradations here. You know, we can get into the theology more later when we talk about other Christian groups. But you can believe in Christ as a savior, but not believe he was divine. Well, Quakers go all the way and say, well, we're not going to require you to affirm that he was divine. You don't have to affirm anything to be a Quaker. You just have to sort of take part in the ethical lifestyle and the sort of collective life of the Society of Friends, and there's no creedal requirement at all. And this is as it stands currently today in the United States. Yes. So there are also Quaker groups, and we can talk about this more. There are Quaker groups that do put more emphasis on Scripture and are closer in their beliefs to more mainstream Protestantism, but they are not predominant in the United States. They're more common in the sort of newer Quaker communities abroad, especially in Africa, where there are now a lot of Quakers. These different sort of branches of Quakerism coexist, and in the U.S., the Orthodox Quakers are more numerous. This non-Orthodox Quaker group that's the minority, how did they end up in modern times in Africa? Missionism. So there was initially, there was a split. We can go through this history more later. I don't want to get too out of order, but there was a split in the 19th century where different Quaker meetings leaned more one way or the other towards more evangelical sort of styles of uh, and biblical-based styles of worship as opposed to the Orthodox style. And it was the evangelical branch that put more 
energy into missionism and sort of spread that form of Quakerism more in Africa. I assume that anyone can go to these like Orthodox Quaker meetings. Meetings. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I were to go to one, what would I observe? What would I be doing? How would I be participating? So Quakers worship in simple gatherings just called meetings. It's not technically called a church. Anyone is welcome, but there's a pretty set process for how Quaker meetings are supposed to work. In a sense, they're free form in the sense that there is no clergy who leads. There's no set liturgy. There's no set hymnal. There is no order of service. Rather, it's, it's sometimes called waiting worship, where the people sit and are silent. So usually most of it is silence, and it might go on for about an hour or so. And if someone feels moved by the Spirit, they then are expected to stand and say whatever they want to share with the meeting. And it's supposed to be prompted entirely by internal sense of inspiration. It's unplanned and it's unprogrammed. And so this is another point of distinction where the more evangelical Quakers sometimes are also called programmed Quakers because they might go in with like a plan of prayers or Bible readings, whereas Orthodox Quakers do not. These meetings are basically independent. They handle their own business. There's no ministry, there's no synod, uh, but you might have kind of designated officers like secretaries or treasurers, and they manage their own affairs. And then there might also be larger regional meetings. So the local meeting that meets for worship is usually weekly. Some of them are on Sundays, some not. There's no kind of designated holy day. And then the kind of regional coordination group is the monthly meeting. And then you might have a big national yearly meeting. And that's the custom that's been going on since the 1700s, really. If there's no clergy or hierarchy at like the local level, how do they organize these regional meetings and national meetings? What's the structure of that organization? Yeah, well, you know, there are people who do special kind of coordinating and organizational work. Obviously, you have to if you're going to get meeting spaces and have money and communicate. But there's no there's no president, there's no bishop. And the yearly meeting is just a yearly meeting where whoever wants to show up shows up. And everyone ostensibly has equal say. It's not like a committee. It's just a bigger meeting. Decisions are supposed to be made. I've never witnessed this happening. It seems kind of incredible that it could really work, but they work by discerning the sense of the meeting. You do not hold a vote. It's not majority rule. It's also not absolute consensus. You don't canvas everyone and make sure every single person agrees. Rather, you're supposed to kind of look around and hear what people are saying until something like consensus starts to form, until you see people coming to agreement about what the meeting as a whole wants. And that's how you come to a decision. And the sort of secretary basically is just supposed to record this was the sense of the meeting. That's it. Is this a process that occurs in every meeting or only meetings when the business... Business meetings, right. So this is not worship. Worship is just silence and then people speaking and reflecting however they want spontaneously. Whereas business, it also is similarly non-hierarchical, but you have to make decisions, right? (laughs) So some kind of conclusion comes from it. Now, if you look historically, 
obviously the question arises of like how can an institution really function like this and can it really be true that nobody's there directing it and calling the shots historically there have always been kind of more prominent quakers people who are very active who have ideas and plans and often are older and are seen as elders of the group and who are more influential and the these people are sometimes just called elders and sometimes public friends so a public friend is sort of an unofficial leader who acts as a face, a spokesperson, a preacher for the Society of Friends. So it's not true exactly that everybody's always completely equal in all ways. Some people kind of rise to the top and are more visible, more vocal. Okay, so like in any gathering of people, there is subtext to the surface level uh, arrangement. Yeah, yeah. There's always kind of unofficial dynamics going on, you know, off the books. Please, Sam, speak for all Quakers and and saying how every single one of them would feel if I were to just go and start my own Quaker meeting. Well, they couldn't really stop you. The thing is, they can disown you. The Society of Friends does have certain sort of ethical strictures of how they expect people to behave. And in their own way, they can actually be quite strict. You know, the total rejection of of violence or participation in violence, the very strict egalitarianism. You know, if you were to go around Quaker meetings and insist, well, I have to be called doctor such and such because I have a PhD, that would be beyond the pale. You know, you're just a friend. Everyone is just friend Michael or friend Sam. And there have even been, historically, there have been specific practices that Quakers insist on to show their total commitment to equality. Like you are not supposed to take your hat off when you go into a Quaker meeting, or really anywhere, anytime. No one wears hats anymore, so it's sort of a dead letter. But traditionally, they kept their hats on because taking your hat off in someone's presence was a way of showing deference to them. You know, you take your hat off when you're addressing your boss or your landlord. Well, Quakers refused to do that, and they kind of made it into a rule. Keep your hat on. That's why the Quaker Oats guy has a hat on, uh, because people associated Quakers with always wearing their hats. And if you didn't follow those sorts of rules, you would become unwelcome and eventually they would disown you and kick you out. And this has happened many times. You'd be excluded from meeting. For example, there were Quakers during the American Revolution. The Society of Friends officially was neutral because they're pacifist. But there were some who supported the revolution and gave money or helped organize a militia. And a lot of them got kicked out of Quaker meetings because that was... That was against their peace witness. So there are boundaries that if you cross them, you're liable to just get excluded, right, and shunned from the society. And there's been a lot of struggle through the years of setting those exact boundaries of what's acceptable and what's not. If you just said, well, I'm starting my own meeting, well, you know, there's not much they could do about that. I I don't think they own the word Quaker meeting, (laughs) but they could refuse to acknowledge you as a fellow Quaker. Before we move into the origins of the Quakers and how they came to the the United States, how can people find out about Quaker meetings? Is there a national organization that lists? Well, there will be a yearly meeting. And there are actually, today, there are several yearly meetings 
in the U.S. because there are these different kind of flavors and branches. But they've got websites. They'd be happy to talk to you. I'm sure they would welcome anybody at a weekly meeting. It's important to understand, I think something that comes up a lot is people sometimes confuse Quakers with other Anabaptist groups that are in some ways more radical in different ways. So they're not the same as Shakers, right? Shakers were a very distinctive religious society that was celibate and that has been kind of in decline and almost disappearing in recent years. So Quakers are not Shakers and they're not Amish or Mennonite. That's something very different. That's a different radical Protestant group that came out of Germany. Quakers do not oppose using modern technology, They have websites, they have podcasts, they do all that stuff. Great. Let's get into the history of the Quakers. You said that the Quaker movement began in the 1600s. Where did it start? What did it come out of? Yeah, this this is really good stuff. I love Radical Reformation 1600s. This is great stuff. So Quakerism emerged out of the ferment of religious radicalism and experimentation in England in the mid-1600s particularly during the English Civil War and Interregnum. That's a whole very complicated history, but just the basic facts you need to know. In the 1640s, there was a civil war between the king and the parliament in England. Parliament won, and the king ultimately was executed. And there was a period which royalists called the interregnum, meaning between the kings. So from the end of 1649 till 1660, there was no king in England. And for a few of those years, there was a dictator, Oliver Cromwell, but there was no king on the throne. So that meant that this authority that had been backing up the Church of England was gone. There was nobody there to enforce the religious uniformity, to back up the power and authority of the bishops, to enforce things like a book of common prayer or an order of worship. So it opened up a kind of free-for-all situation. And Oliver Cromwell, although he was a repressive dictator in many ways, he also believed in religious toleration. So he just said, I don't care. I'm leaving it to the public to figure out their religious beliefs and practices. It was a kind of free-for-all. There was an explosion with no censorship and with no church discipline. There was a sort of explosion of radical ideas. And some people were politically radical. There were so-called fifth monarchists or fifth monarchy men who believed that all human institutions were going to disappear. The second coming of Christ was at hand and there was going to be a kingdom of God. And there were ranters who believed that all sort of moral rules and strictures no longer applied. They were sexually free. There were diggers who were communists who wanted to abolish private holding of property and sort of return to the commons of the earth. So there was this sort of explosion of radical and kind of utopian ideas that a lot of which had probably been around already before, but were repressed and underground, but they suddenly could kind of explode out into the open in the interregnum. A lot of this, you know, naturally caused a lot of fear and consternation. There were many people who were more sort of religiously traditional, whether they were Anglican or Puritan, well, or I should say high church Anglican or Puritan, who saw all of this as dangerous. You know, society was kind of falling apart and and all morality and religion were being thrown out the window. So, this then helped to lead the way 
way then to a restoration in 1660, where the monarchy comes back. When the monarchy was restored, they had to go through this process of figuring out, well, what do we do with all this kind of radical madness going on around the country? They basically said, well, we're going to repress this stuff and start censoring again. And we're going to reinstitute an established church and, and church discipline and all of that. But... The Quakers were sort of this one group that had managed to get big enough and organized enough that they couldn't quite be gotten rid of. And so the Restoration government had to kind of make an accommodation and accept that they weren't going away and they were going to have to accept their existence in some way. And so the Quakers, they were started by one of these radical preachers named George Fox. He was very impressive and he attracted a lot of attention, but he was not as dangerous in some ways, you could say, as some of these ranters and diggers. He wasn't necessarily going around saying all government and society needs to be destroyed, no more private property, total sexual freedom. He still believed in, you know, having law and marriage and some basic institutions like that. But he totally rejected the Church of England and said this is all false deception. This is, it's all ceremonialism and enforced belief. So he he was coming from this point of view that a lot of people really sympathized with. The idea that Christianity should be about true, sincere faith and not about sort of going to church and going through the motions and ascribing to the, the creeds that are rammed down your throat by the local vicar, right? So he wanted a, a sincere religion, a religion of true faith, true conviction. He believed the wealth, the opulence of the church was sinful, and he also completely rejected violence, right? And believed that believers should completely follow the example of Christ and the apostles and should be passive and peaceful and never use force or violence for any reason, not legal or religious, nothing. So he was able to get his message out very effectively and gain a certain number of followers. Clearly, one of the reasons he caught on and gained a kind of effective team of apostles was that he preached total equality, right? Like we said, all people have the inner light of conscience. Christ dwells in all people in the form of this inner light, regardless of race or color or age or gender. And he was very insistent that when Quakers met and prayed together, men and women should be totally equal. He got a lot of followers particularly men too, but especially women, women who were literate and experienced and had a lot of social contacts. Some of them had money. Some of them had traveled and kind of knew the world. A lot of them then became apostles for George Fox's message. These so-called witnesses would gather together and form meetings and then also send, they would select individuals from among their meetings to deputize and send out through the country to preach and get more followers and multiply the meetings. And it caught on very fast in the 1650s, in these sort of mid and later years of the interregnum, particularly in the North Midlands, sort of the no northern and north central parts of England, like Yorkshire, seems to have been the biggest base of Quakerism. I've never really seen much of an explanation why. It just seems that for some reason, that, that sort of society, there were a lot of smallholders. They really got on board. 
And that became kind of the heartland of Quakerism. But it did spread beyond there as well. It went up into Scotland, it went down into southern England and the West Country. Quakers traditionally refer to a sort of main group that spread the faith that they call the Valiant Sixty, these sort of 60 early apostles of Quakerism. And most of them were women, some were men, and some of them were persecuted, even during the interregnum, because there were points sometimes where Quakers, if they went too far, if they did certain things or preached certain messages, the government could see it as a threat to law and order, not just the religious order, but kind of the legal and social order. So some were jailed, some were exiled. They were seen as threatening partly because of their egalitarianism, which seemed to sort of undermine the family and marriage, the sort of, you know, the patriarchy, basically. Uh, Their opposition to war, right? It, It was dangerous if too many people signed on to this peace witness message and refused to take part in war, you know, <laughs> the, the, the power of the state could collapse. And it could sometimes be seen as blasphemous also in a way that even Cromwell's government could insist went too far. And there was sort of a famous incident in 1656, so getting towards the later years of the interregnum, where one of these apostles, who was considered part of the Valiant 60, but he was kind of an odd outlier who had a rift with George Fox. Even George Fox saw him as kind of going too far. But he was determined to carry the Quaker message to the south, and he went down and made a sort of grand entrance into Bristol, this important port town in southern England. And as he entered in, his followers waved palm fronds and put their coats on the ground on the road ahead of him, and he rode in on a donkey, so clearly mimicking Christ's entry into Jerusalem. So he's sending this pretty clear message that he sees himself as kind of another Christ. And in a way, you can see that as kind of pushing the Quaker message all the way to its extreme, right? Everyone has Christ in them through the inner light. So Naylor is sort of saying, well, I am Jesus Christ. (laughs) Or maybe sort of he's the second coming. So this kind of was going finally too far. And he was jailed and sentenced to life in prison, but he was spared execution. And he eventually got out. So he's kind of this little like black sheep where, you know, Quakers today might not talk so much about Naylor. But there are other interesting early apostles who were mostly women who did some really remarkable things in this kind of moment of enormous enthusiasm in the 1650s, like Mary Fisher, who was a serving woman, the sort of low-status woman who saw George Fox preach and was determined to become an apostle. She decided to go on missions to bring the Quaker witness directly to the Pope and the Sultan, who were kind of the evil figures, right? The evil adversaries in the views of Protestants. The Sultan of... Uh... Of the Ottoman Empire okay. in Constantinople. So she went to Italy. She didn't manage to get through to the Pope in the Vatican. They were not interested. But she did go to the Ottoman Empire and managed to get an audience with the Sultan in Adrianople, where she preached that the light of Christ is in all people, and even you, even you, the evil <laughs> Mohammedan Sultan, have uh, this light of goodness in you, and uh, we should all listen to it. And apparently, according to her, the Sultan was very polite and said, oh, very, very nice. Thank you, Miss Fisher. <laughs> you know, you can go back to England now. But, you know, it didn't really catch on in the Ottoman Empire, but it did continued to catch on in England, certainly. And apparently Fisher called herself an ambassador of the Most High God who was determined to testify to the universal light. After her mission to 
the Ottomans was over, she then went to Boston, <laughs> which was slightly uh, more fertile ground, maybe. Uh, also, Margaret Fell was a wealthy woman with a large estate in Cumbria, up in the northern end of England. So she basically made her estate like the headquarters, the unofficial headquarters of the movement where apostles would come and go. She was imprisoned for a time, but was let out again and then married George Fox. So they became kind of the power couple of Quakerism, Margaret Fell and George Fox. The one who's probably most known in America is Mary Dyer who was a Puritan originally. So she was a Puritan colonist in Massachusetts, but she left, she adhered to the teachings of Anne Hutchinson, who was expelled from Massachusetts as a heretic and went to Rhode Island. So Mary Dyer and her husband were in her sort of circle, went with her to Rhode Island. Then she was sort of unsatisfied, still seeking. So she went for a time back to England. And Mary Hutchinson was... Yeah, Anne Hutchinson was a Puritan colonist in Massachusetts. She led her own sort of Bible study and prayer meetings in her house which was very questionable, right, to the authorities in the Massachusetts colony. And she preached a, a sort of antinomian message, which just in a nutshell is the idea that if you have been saved, if you've had a saving grace experience, then you have been transformed and are incapable of sin. You're now sort of above the law and above sin. This was, you know, dangerous and seen as heretical, by most of the ministers, so she was expelled and became one of the founders of Rhode Island. So Mary Dyer was also in her group. So Mary Dyer, you could say, was sort of already in this kind of more radical, antinomian-leaning wing of Puritanism. She then took a trip to England and became a Quaker, embraced the, the Quaker message, went back to Rhode Island, helped spread and establish Quakerism in Rhode Island, and that was sort of the first early foothold of the Quaker faith in America was in Rhode Island, where there was total religious toleration and separation of church and state. But that was not enough for Mary Dyer. She wanted to bring the message. You know, these, these Quaker apostles, they always want to go straight into the lion's den, right? So she went back to Boston and repeatedly was arrested and kicked out over and over, but kept going back to Boston to try to preach and gain more converts until she was arrested and finally hanged in 1660. Right. So right at wow. this. Yeah. And there were others, too. So she was one of several so-called Boston martyrs, but she was probably the most active, you know, repeat offender. She was hanged in 1660. So right at the same time as the Restoration, right at the same time that the royal governments returned in England and they're trying to kind of tamp down and contain this explosion of radicalism from the interregnum. Well, I uh, I'm a Massachusetts resident. I've been for all of my life, for the most part, and I've never heard of... This was not Mary taught Dyer. to us. This was not taught to us. <laughs> yeah, so this was before the Salem Witch Trials, but there is a statue of Mary Dyer on Beacon Hill, I think near the State House. It's not so visible. You don't really see it unless you go look for it, but there is a little recognition there of like, yeah, we, we hanged some Quakers, and I'm sure it was paid for by Quakers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, we're getting into the late 1600s in the United yeah. States. This is the British colonial period. Where does Quakerism go from there? Well, in the Restoration period, basically, when we talk about the Restoration era, it's from 1660 up until about 1680-1685, and Charles II died 1685. The Restoration is kind of this weird period where there's a lot of tug of war of like, how tolerant are we going to be? Are we really going to allow this great variety of religious beliefs? Are we going to try to crack down again, like before the Civil War? It happens to be the same time that 
new colonies are being established in America, where these various sort of offshoot groups, they don't want to be subject to the control of the Church of England, just like the Puritans didn't earlier. Some of them look to America and are like, well, maybe we can come up with something in America where we can practice our form of Protestantism and not be under the thumb of the crown. So this period, this is when the Quakers go through this process that I mentioned before, confessionalization, where they sort of have to say, all right, well, we've had this explosion of enthusiasm and we've got these radical ideas and these radical new practices and there's all this excitement, but now we have to worry, are we going to just kind of dissipate? Are we going to kind of fall apart? Are we going to be suppressed by persecution or censorship? So they have to sort of regroup and organize better and hammer out more clearly Like, who are we and what exactly do we believe and what exactly are we doing to try to hang on as an institution? So they go through this confessionalization and often a a big marker of confessionalization, a big part of it is finding sort of clear markers that show who's part of the group and who's not. So that's where you get a lot of these practices like not taking off your hat. It's the sort of thing you can do so that when you walk around, people say, oh, you're a Quaker, <laughs> right? You're, you're coming into the town hall or whatever and not taking your hat off. You're one of those Quakers. And the sort of style of dress, the style of speech, Quakers still, some of them still today use thee and thou instead of just you in speech because that traditionally was the more informal way of addressing someone. It's the way you address a friend. You say thou thou hast instead of you have. Little habits like that. Quakers kind of came up with those things and have held on to them as sort of distinguishing marks of who's a Quaker. At this point, they're basically in little groups and pockets around England. They're not growing as fast as they were before. And they're in Rhode Island, and they continue to be a a pretty good number there in Rhode Island. But that's basically it until the 1680s. So in the later restoration period, this fellow named William Penn, who comes from a pretty prominent family, he's got a lot of money, he's lent a lot of money to the king, Charles II, he's kind of in good, he can pull some strings at court, and he convinces the king to grant him a charter to create a colony on the Delaware River, basically in this chunk of territory that hadn't quite been claimed by New York or Maryland and was kind of left in there. So he gets this charter and gets together a bunch of money and a bunch of supporters and investors and ships some Quakers out there to create Pennsylvania. So this is the first time that there's a possibility of Quakers actually setting up a kind of Quaker society where they are in control and make the laws. Now, is this something that Quakers took advantage of an opportunity or was William Penn a Quaker? He was a Quaker. He was a Quaker. This was his goal was to create a Quaker colony. Now, a lot of oddities sort of come up with this idea, you could say. For one thing, like, okay, well, they're Quakers and they're nonviolent and they're egalitarian, but like they're creating a colony, they're colonizing. Penn's attitude was we will not claim or use any territory unless it is fairly bought at a fair price and granted to us by the Indians. You know, so he took the same position as Roger Williams earlier in Rhode Island, which was the real owners of this land are the Indians. So we have to come to an agreement with them. So Pennsylvania, they did manage to, at least according to them, they managed to buy a big chunk of land around what's now Philadelphia and start shipping colonists in there. Some of them were Quakers from Northern England, from that sort of Quaker 
heartland. Some were also from Wales. A lot of Welsh Quakers came in there because they were like, you know, close to these ports like Bristol and could get right on a boat and go to Pennsylvania. But another question was, well, we don't believe in violence and we don't believe in persecution or censorship. We believe in total freedom of conscience. So we can't really exclude people who aren't Quakers. So a lot of others came, you know, some regular old Anglicans, Presbyterians. They go to Pennsylvania too, and they want to do all the same things. They want to get some land. They want to have a voice in the government. Also Germans. So a lot of Germans, German radical Protestants, Anabaptists of all stripes. We'll talk about some of them later. These folks like Mennonites, they show up in Pennsylvania as well. And some of their views are kind of similar to the Quakers, but some are not. Resentment and sort of friction builds up pretty quickly. So for hundreds of years, really, there's a sort of quiet power struggle in Pennsylvania between the Quakers and everybody else, where the Quakers have this very clear vision of what they think their society should look like and how it should work. And all these other folks are like, hey, why do you get dibs on like controlling this state? Like, (laughs) we want an equal voice too, and we want land. And if we're going to get land, that means we have to get more land from the Indians. So there's this constant sort of butting heads over, should we be trying to expand and obtain more territory from the Indians or not? And the Quakers usually are trying to pull back and say, no, we shouldn't be expanding. We should be keeping our frontiers and leaving the Indians alone. It gets pretty messy. And basically... By the time you're in like the mid-1700s, you now have a reasonably big Quaker population. It's most of all in Pennsylvania, also New Jersey. A lot of Quakers were early colonists in New Jersey. You've got a pretty big group in Rhode Island, and you also have some going now into North Carolina. So they're in all of these colonies, but the big center still is Pennsylvania. And they're caught up in all these power struggles. And there are these real political flashpoints where the Quaker party and the sort of, sometimes it's called the Presbyterian party, are in this this power struggle for control of law and policy in Pennsylvania. When you're running a government, you have to do things. You have to have jails, right? (laughs) You have to have like militias. Somebody has to have some weapons. They're kind of, you could say, getting their hands dirty doing things that Quakers had never done in England because they were not in charge. So this causes a sort of crisis of conscience within Quakerism in America. There's a sort of sea change starting around 1750 and this massive reform movement that's sometimes called the Quaker Reformation. So from like the 1750s to the 1770s, there's this mass reform movement where Quaker meetings, sort of spurred on by these preachers, decide to clamp down and purify the Quaker community of all of these sort of corruptions and impurities that had come in. Wealth and opulence and ostentation, slaveholding, slave trading, violence, right? Taking up arms, being part of a militia, just taking part in politics, being part of the state government, which uses violence, right, to enforce its authority. There was this sort of movement, and in a way, it arguably started first with this radical visionary preacher, Benjamin Lay, who was a very small man, He may have actually been a a little person, or he may have just been very short, but he lived this very austere lifestyle, sort of, you know, on the model of like the early church apostles, lived in a cave for a long time, 
And he traveled around to Quaker meetings giving these dramatic sermons and demonstrations against slavery and arguing that slaveholding was kind of the ultimate betrayal of Quaker beliefs and of the inner light. The main point, the main basis for this was that it involved violence, right? Slaveholding necessarily uses violence. He sort of got this movement started and then it was taken up by others like Anthony Benizet, who was a Quaker of French Huguenot extraction. And then also in England, it sort of spreads back to the Quaker, the Society of Friends in England with John Woolman starting this kind of internal abolitionist movement. Not really abolitionist because they weren't saying we have to institute laws against slavery. They were saying we have to crack down and reject this among Quakers. And more and more meetings were convinced to adopt rules that if anyone had anything to do with slaveholding, they were cast out, right? They were exiled and excommunicated from the society. And then it extended to other things, alcohol, excessive drinking, involvement in politics, too much wealth, intermarriage, intermarriage with non-Quakers. In a way, some historians have sort of said the Quaker community turned inwards. It sort of withdrew. And formally in Pennsylvania, they boycotted politics. The Quakers pulled out of political life and became a sort of insular society unto themselves. And similar things then happened also in Britain. So there was this period, so like the 1770s, basically, where it's like the Quakers were almost off the map. They had become this kind of sect unto themselves, and they were officially neutral in the revolution. They strictly forbade any of their members from being involved in the American Revolution on either side. After the revolution, then another shift happens where the Quakers have now kind of, you could say, purified themselves, at least in some of their own views. They've purified themselves, they've, they've divested themselves of these corruptions, and now they're ready to kind of go back onto the political stage as moral apostles, a preaching for legal and political action against these immoralities, particularly slavery. And the Quakers become sort of the first vanguard of anti-slavery abolitionism. So this is occurring right when the country is formally founded, like in the late yeah. 1700s. Immediately. So the Quakers at that point, the first abolitionists on the scene. Yes. Well, and even there was some small anti-slavery or abolitionist organizing even before the revolution. Not so much, but it was small. There were some Quaker meetings that special committees for mainly abolition of the slave trade even in 1772-73. That then all gets kind of totally overshadowed by the Revolutionary War. But as soon as the war is over, they hit the ground running and are forming committees and corresponding societies and circulating petitions. The first federal Congress that meets in 1790 in the new federal city, they get inundated with Quaker petitions against the slave trade. And it spurs this big debate on the House floor in Congress about, should we even hear these petitions? And it really divides and becomes a big controversy. Everybody's kind of frightened by it because they know that it could divide the country. This idea of Congress abolishing slavery or the slave trade, they, you know, do not back down and they become sort of the main bedrock of abolitionism from the 1780s up through the 1830s. And Britain, too. So the British Quakers come very quickly on their heels. 1783, so basically as soon as the Treaty of Paris was 
signed. The Quaker campaigners who were trying to, who were, you know, publishing books and trying to use sort of moral suasion, that was the style, was kind of moral preaching against the immorality, the degradation, the violence of the slave trade. They realized, okay, that's not working. (laughs) So they pull in some evangelicals who do not have the same rules and strictures as Quakers. Evangelicals can run for office. Evangelicals can be members of parliament. A few of them were. Quakers wouldn't do that, but evangelicals could. So they pull in some of these evangelicals and form an anti-slavery society for the first time, 1783. And they start kind of picking off members of parliament and using this argument that Britain has to abolish the slave trade or we are losing face in the eyes of the world as a moral, decent Christian nation. We're sort of defaming ourselves. It gained ground little by little and made more and more inroads kind of into the political Anglican political establishment and eventually got a a bill uh, abolishing the slave trade in the British Empire in 1807 and then abolishing slavery throughout the empire in 1834. So it, it really was Quakers and evangelicals that got this done, who were the activists spurring on this movement, but it started with Quakers, which is something that many Quakers (laughs) will be happy to remind you of still today, right? So what's going on with Quakers in the 1800s in the United States? So there's kind of this back and forth pattern you can see with Quakers between really engaging and being public and on the political stage and kind of withdrawing. They're was maybe a little bit of a period of withdrawing again, especially after the slave trade was abolished in 1807, 1808. But then the Second Great Awakening is happening, and there's this sort of upswell in the country at large of enthusiasm for biblical preaching and revivalism. A lot of Quakers are are influenced by that and sort of like this this excitement, this revivalism that they're seeing among, among Methodists. So some start to kind of lean more that way and say, well, maybe we should be doing more of this sort of Bible-based preaching and this more kind of open, enthusiastic revival style of worship rather than these quiet Quaker meetings. So you get a sort of divide opening up among different Quakers. Some stick to what we would call today the more orthodox Quaker position, and some go more in the evangelical direction. Each of these camps have different leaders. The more orthodox group is called Hicksites. Their leader is a man named Hicks from Long Island. And the more evangelical and biblical style are called Gurneyites. So you get this basic sort of schism, this very friendly Quaker schism between Hicksites and Gurneyites. Was it friendly? I think it was friendly. There was no violence. (laughs) At least we could say that. There was no violence. So this is all, by the way, happening like in the 1840s, 1850s, 1840s. Right. So I think the actual schism finally happened 1829 at the Philadelphia meeting. There was a formal split. And then other meetings around the country sort of followed that lead and divided into Hicksite and Gurneyite groups. By the 1830s, it's really a clear divide. One of the effects was that it kind of created this new competition. You now have different Quakers kind of looking over their shoulder and saying, are we out Quakering the other Quakers? It helps then to spur on this new explosion then of political activism and advocacy. Both sides, but especially the Hicksite Quakers, really go on the warpath against slavery and for other causes like 
anti-alcohol, and women's equality, including women's suffrage. So at this point in the 1830s, technically, the slave trade was already banned That's in right. the United States. Right. The international slave trade was illegal, but slavery was still legal throughout the South, and there was an internal slave trade right, and massive slave market in New Orleans. So slavery within the country was only growing and spreading. There's this new movement then where mainly Hicksite Quakers, together with radical evangelicals, form another abolitionist movement, a lot like, you know, what had happened in Britain with abolishing the slave trade. You now have these this sort of Hicksite Quaker network who are abolitionist, feminist, just really radical in all kinds of ways. And they're spreading into these areas like Western New York, like the Burnt Over District, where there's this sort of ferment of radicalism and reformism. And they hook up together with evangelicals and Unitarians and all, all these sorts of, you know, marginal radical groups and launch a real, you know, serious abolitionist movement and the first serious feminist movement. There are these people like Amy and Isaac Post, who we mentioned, who, you know, were part of spiritualism, but they were Hicksite Quakers. Lucretia Mott was a Hicksite Quaker, and she sort of joined together with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, organized the Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention. They sort of, you know, reassert themselves very aggressively and visibly as a radical political force, way out beyond their numbers, the proportion of their numbers. We're only talking about a couple hundred thousand people are Quakers at this point. They have, again, this new relevance through the 1840s, 1850s. But what eventually leads to the abolition of slavery in America? The Civil War, right? Massive bloody war. And Quakers are pacifist. So they, again, withdraw. <laughs> you could, they were sort of like, well, we didn't really mean that. <laughs> so they go again, I think, into a sort of period of quiescence. And you could say that they were kind of like the dog that caught the car. They had achieved this massive victory with slavery abolition. And now they're like, well, what do we do now? Now you're saying they achieved this massive victory. I've heard many different people have many different theories about what's the real reason why slavery was overturned. Was it economic? Was it? Yeah, that's well, that's a massive historical and historiographic debate which I've talked about a little bit on, on my podcast. other podcast. We can't go through it all because it's a huge, complicated question. But here's what I would definitely say for sure, which is if you back up to America, including the North, in the 1830s, people were super racist, right? They didn't want a massive disturbance. They didn't want a breakup of the country. They didn't want mass destruction for the sake of freeing the slaves. That was just not something that hardly anybody was interested in. Abolitionists were a tiny radical wing who were generally hated, socially excluded, and a lot of them were Quakers. And they insisted, despite harassment, despite some deaths, some abolitionists were killed, they kept at it. Just like those early Quaker missionaries back in the 1650s. They said, I don't care if I'm killed. I don't care if I'm seen as an outlaw and a social outcast. I insist on preaching this message. And they stuck to it and they kept slavery on the agenda as a political issue at a time when most people didn't want it there. So you cannot reduce it to just economics 
of northern versus southern economies. For Quakers, this was a moral crusade, and it ran counter to their political and social interests, but they kept it up. You're of the opinion, and you think most historians are of the opinion, that abolitionists and therefore Quakers had a huge impact on the abolition of slavery. Well, they had an impact. I mean, I'm not trying to say that this is proof one way or another about the real reason why slavery was abolished. But what I'm saying is you cannot apply simple economic determinism to the Quakers specifically. It doesn't make any sense. The Quakers were doing this for religious and ideological reasons period. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line when, as far as when we're talking about Quakers. But after the Civil War, they are not so much on the scene anymore. They're no longer at the forefront, except maybe in the women's rights movement, which was comparatively pretty small and not nearly as disruptive a force as the abolitionist movement had been previously. For a time, they kind of go a bit off the map, although they continue to hold their numbers and they continue to migrate west. So you get Quaker meetings in the west, especially in California. They oppose both world wars. So Quakers not only refuse to participate, but take stands against entrance into first and second world wars. They start to come, you could say, back into prominence in a way in the aftermath of the world wars, where there's this massive disruption, there's refugees, there's hunger, disease, and a lot of Quakers throw themselves into refugee aid and recovery work, particularly the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, becomes this huge clearinghouse for volunteers and money and resources to help the survivors and refugees of the World Wars. The American Friends Service Committee and the Friends Service Council in Britain jointly are awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947. Really, in a way, it's remarkable because the Quakers were seen as so weird and radical and fringe for really 200 years before this point, or three, I should say 300 years before this point. And now they're sort of at the epicenter of prestige and, you know, being celebrated on the, the world scene after World War II. So at this point, are Quakers still thinking of themselves as Christian or, or has that long gone by the wayside? Generally, yes. Generally, yes. The notion of being a, a non-Christian or non-theist Quaker it's always kind of there in the background, but it really comes to the fore more later, kind of from the 60s onward. It's more of a recent thing. At this point, when we're talking about the early 20th century, they're still basically a Christian group and generally identify as Christian. And a lot of them, they tend to be more conservative. They tend to be more Republican. A lot of them, they're in the Northeast. A lot of them are more affluent. They might have very long roots in America, going back to the colonial era. They kind of fit the Republican profile. And a lot of them are more conservative in some ways, right? So at a time when there's a lot of labor radicalism and strikes, they tend to be more in favor of protecting private property. A lot of them are anti-socialist. So they're very humanitarian, right? But they're not necessarily radical when it comes to these sort of class conflict issues. And so there's a lot of conservatism, a lot of republicanism. And there have been two Quaker presidents. And people sometimes are sort of shocked when they hear, who are the two Quaker presidents oh, wow. that we've had? I kind of want to guess. <laughs> uh... Quakers today do not generally brag about them. Think who are the worst. <laughs> who are the worst presidents you could claim? <laughs> All right. Well, Nixon. Yes. 
So Nixon. And the other was a Reagan. No, it's actually someone when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover. Okay. So Hoover was a conservative Republican, very pro-business, was sort of infamous for not doing much to ameliorate the depression. But he had been a hero. Before he was president, he was a national hero because of the work he did relieving hunger and the refugee crisis following World War I in Europe. So he was a humanitarian and organizational hero. But the irony is that then when this economic disaster struck in the U.S. on his watch, he really didn't want to do anything to sort of disrupt the social order, to disrupt the prerogatives of business and capital in the way that Roosevelt was willing to do. Obviously, you can make a lot of criticisms and different interpretations about FDR, but Roosevelt, his attitude was, I'm willing to ruffle some feathers in a way that Herbert Hoover was not. So there was a combination here of humanitarianism and conservatism. So I'm assuming this is just natural consequence of Quakers now being around in the country a while, accumulating wealth, and therefore maybe adopting political positions that favor the preservation of their wealth? Is that what's happening? Well, I mean, I think that's a lot of it. I think a lot of it is just the fact that, yeah, they tended to be more wealthy. A lot of them were business people. There were a lot of Quakers went into business. That's always been true from very early on. And you can talk about the big merchant magnates who ran Philadelphia. You can talk about the Cadbury Candy Company, which is, you know, a huge business in Britain was started by two Quaker partners. There's all kinds of things like that where a lot of Quakers had made a lot of money in industry, but also arguably there might be more to it than that as well. You know, this notion of total nonviolence and, and this deep distrust of the state and deep distrust of politics. You know, Quakers kept going through these sort of cycles of now we're done with politics. It's dirty. We want nothing to do with it. There's almost a sort of antipathy to state power which in a way could undergird a kind of conservatism. The government should stay out of society. The government should stay out of private in enterprise and private affairs because the government is this, this sort of alien, dangerous entity that we don't want anything to do with. So in a lot of ways, Hoover makes a lot of sense. Nixon is a lot weirder because, you know, <laughs> Nixon was definitely not a pacifist, but he's kind of his own weird entity unto himself. It's so different from the stereotype of, of a Quaker I have in my head now of being more on the hippie side of the spectrum than yeah. on the libertarian, conservative, necktie, white shoe side of the spectrum. What happened between Hoover and now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the civil rights movement probably is the last really crucial shift in the story, is where you now have, again, a sort of massive moral crisis coming to the fore. And a lot of it starts because of black organizations themselves that put civil rights on the agenda, like the NAACP and then, you know, the SCLC. But Quakers really get on board very thoroughly, right? So you get this sort of a, a new mobilization, I think, of a new generation of Quakers who want to be part of this sort of ecumenical, interreligious crusade 
for civil rights, you know, this the Martin Luther King SCLC kind of movement. I think that you get another sort of sea change where Quakers become politicized again, and they become politicized in a new way in the 60s. First, the civil rights movement sort of starts it, and then it goes right over into the anti-war movement, right? The anti-Vietnam War movement and second wave feminism, the sort of new dawn of human rights organizations and environmentalism. Quakers sort of weave themselves into all of that and start to be seen as kind of part of the post-60s, yeah, like radical counterculture rather than sort of stodgy old, (laughs) just stodgy old wasps, right? Is it the, the children of the stodgy old wasps that end up going down this path? I think so. I don't know. I haven't read a lot about it specifically, but I think some of them are kind of born and raised in the Society of Friends and have this kind of legacy of we were abolitionists, right? And we we stood up against the slave power and we were feminists. But also I think a lot of it is newcomers. A lot of it is people who are kind of already countercultural, fringy, aren't sure what they think about religion, are a little creeped out by the Bible and church ceremony. And Quakerism kind of offers this different route where you can be, you can have some of that community and sense of moral message that you want from religion, but without the bad stuff or without the things that you consider the bad stuff. That's very egalitarian, that's pacifist. So I think a lot of newcomers came in. I would wager that's probably what sustained their numbers. So today you have between about 300 and 400,000 self-identified Quakers in America, which is about holding steady from where it's been for 100 years or more. I think that's probably because they get new blood. That new blood then sort of colors the political complexion, the the style of Quakerism. Yeah, and, and I think the last thing that sort of has really kept Quakers on the map in the American landscape is education. They've always been big proponents of schooling and education for both men and women. And they were also pioneers, early pioneers of, of educating girls and of co-education, of setting up schools, boarding schools, colleges for men and women together. A lot of prestigious liberal arts colleges in America are Quaker. I think depending on how you count, there are 15 or 16 Quaker colleges and universities. The first one was Guilford in North Carolina, which was founded in 1837, pretty early when there were not many colleges in America, especially outside the Northeast. That's really where you had to go for college at that time, unless you went to William and Mary. So Guilford was really early. And then a bunch of major liberal arts colleges in Pennsylvania, Haverford, Swarthmore, and Bryn Mawr. Then later others like Whittier in California. So sort of part of that Quaker transplantation to California. And those earliest ones, Guilford, Haverford, and Earlham in Indiana, they were all started by Gurneyites. So that sort of minority movement that was more evangelical, more biblical. It made sense, you know, a lot of religious denominations start colleges when they want to have educated clergy who can preach on the Bible and theology and so on. So Gurneyite Quakers wanted that. And those early Quaker colleges were Quaker only. (laughs) Right? No, you have to be a Quaker to, to attend or teach. But then later, the Hicksite Quakers wanted to catch up. Right. So Swarthmore was founded by Hicksites at the end of the Civil War, and it was more sort of social reformist and it was inclusive. Anyone could attend. 
And then later others, like I mentioned, Bryn Mawr and Whittier. All of them are co-educational from the beginning. It happens my cousin actually attended Guilford, the oldest Quaker college in North Carolina. She said the school song, they have a fight song. Oh. Yes. Fight, fight, inner light. Kill, Quakers kill. (laughs) Knock them down, beat them senseless. Do it till we reach consensus. That's pretty ridiculous. A little, little Quaker wow. self-satire there. Wow, so the Quakers really are the cicadas of America. They yeah. go into hibernation, and then once in a while, they'll come out in full force and champion the cause that's on the correct side of history. So they're doing a pretty good job. They have good stats. Yeah, they, they've, got a, they've got a solid record there. They keep showing up again. Can't keep them down. And something I think often about Quakers that's sort of funny is, in a way, we've kind of all become Quakers, right? Quakers can, can sort of blend into the background now. Because in a way, we've all become Quakers. We all think, well, we should be really equal, and everyone is holy, and everyone has conscience, and we should govern ourselves democratically and listen to every voice, and slavery is bad, and racism is bad, and like... In in a way, again, it's like America kind of caught up to them to the point that now it's like, oh, yeah, obviously Quakers, but they were definitely outliers for most of their history. And in some ways still are, you know, among religions, they still are unusual. Thank you, Sam, for bringing the Quakers to us. Yeah, bringing the Quakers. Oh, and lastly, Quakers. I didn't explain. Why are they Quakers? Well, we don't know for sure. The name popped up sometime in the 1650s, and it stuck. The best theory is that it was referring to in the Quaker meeting, when people would start out in silence, and you're supposed to wait silently for the spirit to move you. And so a lot of them would would literally tremble and shake with inspiration before they then might stand up and speak. And so that was sort of visitors saw that as peculiar, and that's how they, they started to be called Quakers. Quakers. Thank you, Sam. One of the best things to come out of England. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll take more of those, I guess, England. (laughs) England, please send over your Quakers. Thank you all for listening. This will be posted publicly. Thank you, patrons, for your support. The next episode will be patron only. What's our faith that we're going to do? The Native American Church. The Native American Church, which is different from native american religion as we described it in our patron only episode yeah so if you want to become a patron go to patreon.com slash god save america give a dollar that's all you need and you can get access to all of our episodes and yeah looking forward to the next one thanks for listening thank you god save america god save america